Hello and welcome to The Great Collide, where we explore the intersection between politics and faith. I'm Jasmine Taylor. And I'm Leanne Noland. With war in Ukraine and the Middle East, a worldwide environmental crisis and political polarization here in the United States, hope is in short supply this Advent season. But our guest today is declaring that hope is here, which is the title of Dr. Luther E. Smith Jr.'s new book. To find out why he's so optimistic, let's welcome Dr. Smith, an author, editor, and professor emeritus of church and community at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. So Dr. Smith, at the beginning of your book, you talk about your father being impressed by a sermon on 1 Corinthians where the preacher declared that hope, not love, was the greatest. And so why do you embrace this message? It's not so much my feeling that hope should be elevated above love. What really made an impression on me was his identifying hope with such a a significance uh, in his sermon that it led me to really want to try and understand what is the greatness of hope without necessarily trying to say to what extent um, can I assess that hope is greater than love. Um, And it's it's been an over 50-year effort on my part to truly uh, understand this greatness of hope that probably led this preacher to that uh, conclusion that at which he arrived, but to also help me to uh, recognize understandings of hope that are not that great, that truly fail to uh, embody the greatness of hope, understandings of hope that are primarily about optimism, our desire, um, understandable human emotions, but ones that I think really fail to capture the significance of hope as a force of God for us. So can you tell me what, what inspired you to write the book, Hope is Here? My inspiration for writing really grows out of this exploration I've been on, as I've said, for over 50 years to truly uh, understand how hope uh, is very much a part of the transformation that God dreams for us, uh, transformation for us personally and transformation for us collectively. I have been listening to how people have used the word in context where they have been so despairing about personal realities, national realities, community realities, international realities. And I gleaned from that uh, this desire to have their dreams for a better future in some way realized out of their hopefulness or their dreams for a better future uh, somehow realized by the sense in which they feel that that hope is out there somewhere and will likely arrive in a way that will rescue uh, or fulfill. And that's understandable, but it, it also fails to, in some way, identify how hope is already with us, that uh, we don't have to keep our eyes cast to the horizon for 
hope to rescue us or to fulfill us. Hope is very present. And the definition of hope that really drives the writing is uh, hope is a force of God that enlivens us to life. So for the many despairing realities in which I'm wanting uh, for some change to be occurring, I need to be taking seriously uh, what opportunities do I have immediately for change to be occurring within me, as well as for change to be occurring within the organizations in which I'm involved, for change to be occurring within my community. And it's out of that kind of engagement that I have discovered that um, the work of hope is transformative, even in the midst of an environment that we perceive to be despairing. And the work of hope can be enlivening in ways that um, prevent us from being captured by despair or prevent us from being captured by indifference or by passivity. Because hope is always calling us to life as with love. And as you uh, probably know from reading of the book, I believe hope and love are always uh, together, that you don't have hope without love, and you don't have love without hope, and you need to be very suspicious of any context where love is being described, but hope is not present, or where hope is being described and love is not present. I think any situation where hope and love are perceived and engaged and enacted especially with the help of the spiritual practices, can be ones in which we find ourselves more fully available to life as God has called us and with the capacity to truly live the kind of life to which God is calling us. And I love the idea. Hope is already with us. Now, is there a difference, though, between hope and hopefulness? And if yes. so, what is that difference? I think hopefulness, it reflects uh, a word you were using earlier, optimism, where persons are feeling that uh, a kind of uplift about the possibilities they're wanting to see realized coming into uh, being, um, where persons uh, perceive that they've marshaled enough resources or they've marshaled enough of um, friends and, and companions to make a difference in their communities. And it leads to this kind of emotional sense of um, what I so desire, what I so want uh, can happen. That's hopefulness. And it's a wonderful emotion to have. Um, but we have to be careful about confusing it with hope because hope not, does not just appease our desires. Hope does not just fulfill our wishes. As I write, hope can be disruptive. And the very thing that perhaps I'm not paying attention to are the very uh, ways in which I have to change my life in order to really join the work of hope may prove to actually be in many ways disturbing to me. As you know, there's a section of the book I write where I talk about the hope we resist so much so that I really resist hope because I don't perceive it's making me feel better. But it's my conviction 
and I think the conviction of our Christian faith that hope is for us. It's for us even when we do not necessarily feel happy and delighted about that into which it's calling us. But it's really intending to bring about transformations for us personally, as well as transformations in the larger world that align with how God dreams fulfillment for us, or to use a Christian term, how God dreams salvation, the sense of becoming whole for us. It's this calling that I think is crucial for us to be on the faith journey. That being, how am I not simply someone who is living through what is familiar to me, what is uh, feeling safe for me, what in many ways seems to be uh, pleasant and a golden path, but how might I truly be on the path and making the choices that are responding to how God has this call upon my life? How would you respond to this, this statement? I've heard this and I you know, want to know what you think, but where it says hope is a child of despair. I think hope certainly emerges for us out of situations of despair, but hope is uh, both desperately needed and very much with us when we find ourselves in uh, situations where we think we're living large and we have no uh, pressing matters that promise tragedy or uh, hardship. As I have said in the book, it's hope is like our need for air. And even though you may be drowning in the ocean and, and desperate for air at that point, and every opportunity to breathe deeply is an expression of gratitude for uh, getting air because of your need for air. We need air when we're in situations of ease, and hope is like that. It is a persistent need for us that doesn't just emerge out of crisis. And when we understand the character of hope as being with us now in our uh, matters of joy and delight and celebration, as well as in our matters of crisis, I think we have a greater sense of what hope is as a force for us and how to shape our lives in response to the presence of hope. And hopefully, <laughs> giving ourselves in ways in which we understand how there are practices that enable us to have this greater sensitivity to hope and how they reshape us such that our lives are aligned with hope. Can you talk about hope in your own life? Was there ever a time when hope in your life was in short supply? And, and how did you find that hope? How did you find it again? Like everyone, my life has been full of valley experiences and mountaintop experiences, times of trial and as well as times of absolute celebration. I have experienced, however, that God has been present with me in all of those situations, not just the mountaintop experiences. And hope and love are always with God. So if God is always with me, hope and love are always with me. Even if I do not feel hopeful, even if I do not have elevated feelings of things coming about that I'm desperately wanting, still, 
there has been for me a sense that I have never been forlorn. And that is the kind of difference that I think is crucial for all of us. How do we move through matters of severe grief, as well as matters where it seems as if the various things that we have desired for ourselves have been very much a part of us. And what comes through in the book are stories of people who uh, find their own lives to be in uh, situations of unrelenting pain, to be in situations where they are no longer in their homeland and they are needing to make one adjustment after another, not just with language, but even matters of survival and where dreams are absent, yet have found the capacity to move through life, not being in a sense so numbed by their situation that they're simply waiting life out for hope to arrive, but to really move through life with the, with the sense of, of capacity, the, the sense that, that something is for them, for transforming them, and in uh, some of the stories of the book, transforming them to discover a whole new life in the midst of pain, rather than a whole new life because pain has gone away. It's, it's these testimonies of individuals over the years that I've actually collected in, in what I call my therapy files uh, that have assured me that there is no condition that we face that in and of itself can have a kind of absolute crushing of the spirit. The only condition that I think is likely to be vulnerable to that feeling of being absolutely crushed is when we have the experience of being absolutely alone, that there's uh, no memory of us with anyone who is trying to sustain relationship. And when we perhaps even feel God forgotten, that may be the one human experience where we are in such a desperate state that hopefully there is some kind of um, of connection made to us that assures us that we are not absolutely alone. I think there are persons who perhaps have not had human contact for a long time. They have lived solitary lives, but what has been sustaining for them has been the capacity to also live with those witnesses who have preceded them by generations and they live in the company of saints. And this is fulfilling for them. This is uh, something that can sustain us, I think, even in the most uh, difficult of settings. But what does it mean if we, if our children, if coming generations have no sense of the communion of saints? Uh, what does it mean if tradition is not something that uh, has been not only taught, but celebrated and lived in by us. Our calling is to address this and to realize all the more how important it is, I feel, for us to be attentive 
to the ways in which we are people created for community. We are a people who were born into community. And God's dream for us is always with a sense of community that is uh, always going through some process of transformation. This, I think, is our challenge to, to take seriously how God's dream for community, and as you know, the, in the subtitle of the book, Spiritual Practices for Pursuing Justice and Beloved Community, that God dreams beloved community for us. How are we teaching this? How are we uh, involved in practices that enable us to experience it? How are we able to celebrate our own experiences of beloved community as ways in which we not only are making it day to day, but ways in which we are making it into the future? This is this is what I believe to be um, our work. This is what I believe to be the work of hope. So Dr. Smith, as we talk about joining in that work of hope, are there some practices that you could offer up to help us connect hope with justice issues? How do we pursue justice um, while keeping that hope intact? What, do, what does that look like? There are five main practices that I focus on in the book, but there are many other practices that are entailed even in a focus on these five main ones. Contemplative praying is uh, the first uh, practice about which I speak, and that is, how are we in communication with God? How are we listening? Um, how are we listening to our own hearts? How are we listening to other persons? And it involves a contemplative mindset to have a depth of listening, which, as I say, is truly a key sense in our whole biblical heritage. How are we listening to God? Uh, Pharaoh stopped listening uh, to God, and, and there are consequences when people stop listening to, to God and, and what God has intended for creation. How have we stopped listening to one another? How have we stopped listening to ourselves? And contemplative praying, I think, is helpful in enabling us to truly hear what is for us, uh, to hear what we need to hear, and to then discern what we've heard, uh, as well as to uh, enact what we've heard. How do we engage um, the hearing of God and not just be able to recite it. A second practice is that of prophetic remembering. Again, this goes to what I was saying about the importance of tradition and not just to be inspired by the prophets, but to uh, understand how the prophets are speaking to us in this particular time for the kind of community into which God is calling us to be. Um, and a spiritual practice for us is to be prophetic and not just to be able to talk about the prophets and adore the prophets, but really to have our lives um, uh, being prophetic. There's a term that I use in the book, prophetic neighboring. And what does that mean for congregations to be prophetic neighbors? What does it mean for us as individuals to be prophetic neighbors? Uh, third discipline is crossing identity boundaries. Um, how do I recognize uh, 
the kinds of sensitive matters of relating to someone who is very different than me. And uh, that just because they're of a different race, they may not define themselves primarily in terms of race, or if they're of a different ethnicity, they may not define themselves in terms of ethnicity. They may be defining themselves in terms of traumatic experiences. They may be defining themselves in terms of family heritage. They may be defining themselves in terms of their work. And we can have a conversation that we think will be uh, in some way creatively crossing uh, boundaries of our differences that, that really never go anywhere if we truly fail to have uh, a sense of how we are able to hear someone say to us, these are boundary markers for me. And how am I able to communicate to someone my own boundary markers so that over time we have a deeper understanding of appreciating one another, of crossing our own boundary markers and embracing one another in the um, hope that we often have for our reconciliation. I don't think we truly get to beloved community without affirming our differences, affirming our identities, rather than what some people want to do, and that is to diminish identity, to diminish differences. Uh, we're in a pluralistic society, and I think our only hope for beloved community is to understand how we affirm the differences of a pluralistic society, how we celebrate the differences of a pluralistic society, and not just try to eliminate them and create a sense of new identity, national identity, cultural identity that uproots people out of these, out of their own sense of heritage and identity. The fourth one is transforming conflict. Conflict is something that all of us have experiences being within, and few people, I think, negotiate conflict well. Conflict can be, I know, disturbing. But conflict can also be necessary for justice as well as beloved community. And it's key for us to understand how might we befriend conflict? How might we develop the kinds of skills that enable us to engage conflict creatively as God is desiring for us to have disruptive experiences in the society? and within our churches and within our communities. With that, I think we discover how to befriend uh, transformation and to make the kinds of sacrifices that lead to transformation. And the fifth spiritual practice on which I focus is celebrating community, which is much more than simply celebrating victories, which is unfortunately the way in which too many organizations and churches think of celebration. But how do we think of celebrating community as a kind of um, necessity uh, from the very beginning of an effort, especially as you're working for justice, and through perhaps some of the worst times of an effort where you haven't had a single victory, but there is this profound need to celebrate, we are still here, we are still committed, we see the vision, we are giving ourselves to it. 
we have seen our mistakes and we have seen the reticence of those forces in the larger community that want us to go away. But we are singing, we are dancing, we are rejoicing, we are eating together, we are going forth because this is that to which God has called us. That is, that is key for arriving at beloved community. And uh, we have to think about celebration as we do Sabbath. You don't just decide, uh, you know, Sabbath is something we only acknowledge when we um, are ready to rejoice before God about how things are going. No, Sabbath is uh, hopefully a regular rhythm of our lives, a regular rhythm of our faith that we know is essential for the kind of journey to which we've called. All of this, of course, will include uh, a range of other kinds of disciplines. Humility is vital to uh, any of this. Invitation is essential to all of this. I, I note this in the book as five essential disciplines that relate, I believe, to many of the other spiritual practices that are I, necessary, I think, for the work to which God has called us. And, and more than thinking of them as necessary, I would like to think that are gifts for us, blessings for us to the work that God has called us. Thank you for that. Now, you've touched on my next line of questioning, but I'm going to kind of go into it a little bit further for you to say, what does the beloved community mean to you? And how does that provide hope? Beloved community, uh, to me, means the kind of community that God has dreamed for us that is characterized by compassion and justice. The original concept of beloved community was primarily about recognizing how community is truly essential to the making of a moral person more than what is so usually emphasized, how might we create moral people that will lead to a moral community. Community precedes us. We are born into a community. The creative process of God is the process of creating community, uh, even community among uh, nature. Uh, and the community among nature is for us. And uh, hopefully we are able to see that stewardship of that community is essential to our own well-being. So community, I think, is uh, that which can be understood even throughout the Bible as what God is most focused on as wanting for God's creation. This is where I think we make a mistake of reducing what the whole biblical narrative is about in terms of personal salvation. If we are describing personal salvation in terms of becoming whole as an individual, wonderful. But even that is related to community. How is my becoming whole responsive to God's dream for creation itself, for community? And I think uh, we can not only see this in Genesis, we see this also throughout the ministry of Jesus where Jesus is always in some way challenging the larger community in which healings are taking place and the larger community in which um, justice is being um, disruptive. Unfortunately, too often people think of beloved community and they use the term in beloved community only to speak about peace and harmony and um, 
compassion, that's lovely. And, and uh, certainly those are, can be elements of beloved community. But when Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about beloved community, it always entailed justice. It was, it was never um, something that one could exclude from understanding what God's dream for creation is. It always entailed justice. And the prophets, of course, are always reminding us of this. So uh, for me, beloved community is compassion and justice and being uh, committed to the path of discovering what beloved community can uh, look like even beyond our imaginations. Well, doctor, I thank you so much for the hope you've shared, inspiration you've shared with us today in your book. And I think differently now about the hope candle that will light for Advent um, on our wreaths and what that really means for us. And so as we close out our podcast today, would you would you mind leaving us with a prayer of hope? We come before you, O oh God, truly with many things upon our hearts to speak to you, even though we know you are already aware of what our hearts are crying, are celebrating, are fearing, are embracing. Still, we have a need to hear ourselves declare to you what's upon our hearts. Still, we have the need to hear ourselves declare our gratitude for this relationship of your presence with us, with all our questions, with all our anxieties, with all our certainties, with all of our readiness and unreadiness. We pray, O oh God, that you might assure us that we can trust you so that our lives are not lived with the concern that perhaps you have overestimated who we are, and who we can be. Help to assure us, O oh God, so that our faith in you, our trust in you, is an authentic expression of how you created our hearts to be with you in all the seasons, in all the days, in all the moments of our lives. This we pray. Amen. 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 That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Smith, for sharing a much needed message of hope. Now be sure to download all of our great Collide episodes, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, leave us a review, and most importantly, tell your friends. Go to gcbm.org for all the links. The Great Collide is a production of the Greater Chicago Broadcast Ministries a communications ministry of the Protestant, Orthodox, and Episcopal Churches of Greater Chicago in cooperation with the Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago. I'm Leanne Noland. And I'm Jasmine Taylor. Keep, Keep the, the faith. faith.